Again, as you've noticed, the arrangement is a little different. So if you showed up this morning and it's your first time at Image Church, no, we don't normally always feed people this well. So I don't want to set the standards uh, really high. Um, but we do have a little bit of a special occasion this morning. We have a couple of high school graduates uh, that we're going to be celebrating. And I tell you, there's nothing that makes you feel as old as seeing young people become adults, boys become <laughs> men. Uh, but that's what we have, and that's what we're celebrating. So we're going to be having a little bit of a barbecue lunch, so bad to the bone. Restaurant in San Juan, we're going to be having food uh, catered, and we'll be serving that after uh, the study this morning. But before we get into that, we're going to continue our study of the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there to... The book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at just four verses this morning. It's going to be chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And we've been going through a series we're calling Authentic Church. And we're calling it Authentic Church because if you really want to know what the real deal looks like, what a church is, what it's for, it has a purpose, it has a goal, it has a nature. If you want to know what that is, the only place you can look for a perfect picture of what it is, is in the Holy Scriptures. Now we all know most people know a little bit more about church, not from the Bible, but from their experience. And again, that's not entirely a wrong thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls us and other believers in Jesus and their communities of various kinds and backgrounds. He calls those the body of Christ. And that is because churches are to be living representatives of Jesus Christ himself. And so that's actually not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're glad that people who don't know the Bible who have no idea who Jesus Christ was, Jesus of Nazareth. They have no idea about the Christian belief system. They have no idea what Christianity says is right and wrong or anything in the middle or why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. But the beautiful thing is the way the church is designed, it is to introduce people to Jesus through living personal relationships. And so that is a beautiful thing and that is a good thing. But we all know, sometimes the body of Christ does not put its best foot forward. Sadly, I think we can all admit that though we might say we're, we're saved, we're forgiven by God, we believe in Jesus, we're going to heaven when we die, and yet nevertheless, we do not always represent Jesus well. And so it's very important so that we don't give the wrong impression to people who don't know Jesus that we are the ultimate standards of what a church should look like or even what a Christian should look like. And so it's so important that we go back to the Bible, back to the sources, to see what God's will and God's heart is for the Christian community. And so part of what I'm hoping this study does, if, if anyone doesn't know what a church is supposed to look like, if anyone knows what a church looks like, but it wasn't a good experience, it was a bad experience, and even being here today is, is a difficult thing. We want people to see what God's heart and what God's intention is for the church. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, but in particular in the book of Acts. And the reason that we see it there is because the book of Acts is a historical book, and it actually records the birth of the Christian church, not the birth of a denomination, but the birth of the very Christian church itself, out of which have come the many denominations in the world. And so this morning we're continuing that study. The church has been born because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on believers in Jesus, promises that had been given hundreds, if not even thousands of years prior in the Old Testament, or what we also call the Hebrew Bible, had been fulfilled, and the church had been born. And so far, God is multiplying. People are getting saved. People are being convicted that, yes, I'm wrong, and God is right. 
The Holy Spirit is overcoming resistance and rebellion and objections and obstacles to the gospel. As a matter of fact, the very place where Jesus was condemned and killed is the very place where the church is born and begins to grow in the thousands. So it's an incredible picture. But as we're going to see, things here this morning do begin to change. And we're going to take a look about what changed, why it changed, and what difference that makes for us today. So let's begin by reading Acts 4, 1 through 4. I'll pray, and we'll get into our study. So this is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is God's Word. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that you alone are creator of heaven and earth. Everything that has come into being has come into being through your creative power. Lord, if we see evil in the world, that is not what you've created. That is what people who you've created have chosen to do with what you have given them. And so, Lord, we confess that you are not the author of evil. As a matter of fact, you are the source and fountain of every good thing. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to see man's greatest need no matter how old or young we are this morning, no matter where we come from, no matter our cultural background, our economic status, our status in society, we all share in humanity's greatest need, which is a need for a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so we would pray, Lord, that those who are estranged from you would come home. We pray that those of us who have come home and we are living in your household, but sometimes we do not behave in ways that are befitting a son or a daughter of the king. We pray that we would receive correction and guidance this morning in all humility, being willing to confess those ways in which we have erred and strayed like lost sheep. We pray that together you would glorify your son Jesus for whom we were redeemed. And we pray that you would change our lives. And we pray that you would use us to make an eternal difference with the time we have remaining. We ask for your blessing now over the hearing of this study in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if anyone asked me to give some sage advice to a high schooler who is heading off to college, I've come up with this. Read the warning label. That's good advice. If you think about it, read the warning label. Now, it's kind of funny because many people don't read warning labels when they should. And we actually have many warning labels that you think no one should need. And yet, apparently, we do. I want to give you just a few examples of that latter kind of warning labels we don't think we would need, but apparently we do. Here's kind of the, the top ten. Number one, these are real, by the way. There is a warning label on a wheelbarrow, and it says, warning, not intended for highway use. <laughs> Number two, there's a warning label on a brass fishing hook, which says, warning, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> Number three, a warning label on Apple's website, warning, do not eat, iPod shuffle. Number four, a warning label on a Chipotle truck. Warning, drivers do not carry burritos. Number five, a warning label on a carpenter's electric drill. Warning, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. Number six, a warning label on a takeout coffee cup. Warning, 
avoid pouring on the crotch area. <laughs> Numbers, that's really good advice. Warning seven, label on a jet ski. Never use lit match or open flame to check fuel level. Warning number eight, label on a dishwasher. Do not allow small children to play in the dishwasher. Warning nine, on a vanishing ink marker. Warning, this should not be used for signing checks or any legal documents. And lastly, number 10, a warning label on a baby stroller. Warning, remove child before folding. So those are examples of warning labels where we have them and you don't think we would need them, but apparently we do. But we also have the opposite problem. There are warning labels we need, but we don't read. And I want to suggest this morning that Christianity should have a warning label on it. Warning. Following Jesus may cause persecution. Now, much of American Christianity tries to erase the warning label. I can understand why. If I'm being charitable, and I think as followers of Jesus, even if we're going to criticize people, we should do so through Christian virtue and ethics. And so if I'm being charitable, I think some people mean well by trying to remove the warning label off Christianity. In this particular view, with this assumption, people believe it's important to get others to Jesus. They believe that people are sinful, they've fallen short of the perfect, not just good, the perfect standards of a holy, righteous God. They believe that when people die, everyone, regardless of where they come from or how much they've heard or haven't heard, they will stand before the judgment seat of God and they will give an account for everything they did in their life. And if they don't have Jesus, they will hear a guilty verdict and receive what is coming for them. And so many people moved with compassion and wanting to get other people to Jesus. They, they want to give them all the good, shiny, nice, enjoyable, happy parts of Christianity. And they're concerned, they're worried that if you were to put a warning label on your presentation of the gospel, that many people would opt not to receive Jesus. But I think Jesus and the Bible have placed a very large written red ink warning. One of the things I love about Jesus is he does what I wish every person in a dating relationship would do, which is at some point, preferably prior to marriage, they let you know what the fine print is, right? I mean, effectively, that's kind of what this whole cultural phenomenon on dating is. And sometimes we forget uh, dating is a relatively new invention. It's, it's neither right nor wrong. It's just a cultural convention. We all know in many cultures today, and even in the biblical culture, there was no such thing as dating. Many people didn't even get to pick who it was you were going to marry. That was arranged for you prior to you even being born, potentially. But if we're going to do this dating thing, kind of what your goal is, and hopefully marriage would be the ideal long-term goal, your goal in dating, therefore, would be to figure out what the fine print is. Because what I've seen over the years as a pastor is too many young people in the church have rushed to the altar without reading the fine print. And this is not to say that we all will ever know everything we wished we would have known. That's never going to happen. But it is to say that sometimes people are so running towards the altar that they fail to look at the fine print. And once they get married, then they see, oh, this is what a relationship with you entails. And then you might say to yourself, gosh, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This isn't what I thought. This isn't what I planned. I hear this time and time and time again, and I'm no prophet, but I'll tell you, I'll probably hear it again soon. Because it's kind of the way it is. Now, while there's no way to totally prevent that, it is wise that we seek to look for that fine print and say, what will the cost be in this relationship. There's always a cost, isn't there? 
in every relationship. There's a cost taking a certain job over another, going to one college over another, taking one job over another, marrying one person over another, having kids, having more than one kid. There is a cost to all of that, and so it's wise that we know the cost. But unfortunately, many people don't come with a warning label. They seek to hide the fine print. They want to pretend that there is no fine print. I am so thankful that Jesus let us know what the fine print was. What we're seeing here in Acts 4 is sort of the end of what we might call the honeymoon of the church. The first three chapters, who would not want to get on board with this? I mean, this is amazing. This is exciting. God is moving mightily. Supernatural phenomena is being manifest. That gets people excited, both believer and unbeliever alike. When people see the supernatural, they get excited. Whether that's God or not, for most people, it doesn't even matter. They're just excited to see something supernatural happen. Something supernatural was happening in the first three chapters of the book of Acts. People are coming together in the book of Acts. Unity is happening. Barriers are being overcome. Linguistic barriers, cultural barriers, uh, gender barriers, all these things are being overcome. And people are experiencing joy. As a matter of fact, people are so joyful, they're just giving everything they have because they want to be a part of it. That's how exciting it was to be a part of the church. And what we would want to say is if anyone decided today whether they knew a lot or a little about following Jesus, we would want to affirm that following Jesus is the best and most exciting thing you could ever do with your life. I want to affirm that. But along with that, what we see here is that the Christian life is not all joy and easiness of life. With the Christian life is going to come difficulties, suffering, trials, and even persecution. What we're seeing here in Acts 4, 1 through 4 is no strange thing. Jesus promised his followers that this would happen. He gave them the fine print. He said that in this world you will have tribulation. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You're going to be vulnerable if you choose to follow Jesus. He said that many are going to reject you if you follow Jesus. Many people are not going to want to keep company with you. They're not going to want to identify with you. They're not going to want to be your friend. They may turn their back on you. And Jesus wants people to know about this. Because we're not trying to talk somebody into something like so many salespeople today who don't care about whether a product or a service is right or wrong for the person they're selling it to. They care only about their particular gain and result. But when it comes to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, we want people to know Jesus. But we also want them to know what Jesus said. And he said that following him would not be easy, but that it would be good. And so what we're seeing here is a warning label. And I want to go over this warning label and this account, this honeymoon period being over. It is not all just good and joy, but trial and tribulation has come upon the church. And so let's take a look at what is happening here and we'll reflect on it for our lives today. So here in verses four, uh, one through four, we see that the apostles are arrested not for jaywalking, but for walking with Jesus. So think about that for a moment. How many people are willing to be arrested for doing good? I think a lot of people assume that if I do good, I won't be arrested. And thankfully, I think the laws in the United States, they're not perfect. So don't get me wrong. I think there's room for change. There's room for making things better. I think there's a lot of laws that, that certainly shouldn't be what they are. But broadly speaking, if you're going to go to jail, at least as far as the crimes are concerned, it is accurate. You should not be doing that kind of a thing, and that's why you would go. But once in a while, what is good is actually outlawed in a society. 
And that's what is happening here. The apostles were not criminals. They were not doing anything that was wrong. They were not harming people. They were trying to do the opposite. They were trying to bless people's lives with the greatest good anyone could ever receive. That was their heart. That was their goal. And they were arrested while in the middle of walking with Jesus. And so I want us to already be thinking about, are we willing to suffer for Jesus? Are we willing to be arrested? Am I willing to be arrested? It's one thing to walk with Jesus when my culture says, oh, that's so good. We're a Christian culture. Very good, pastor. But what if they change? And they say, if you keep teaching the Bible, we're taking you to jail. If you keep coming to church, you go to jail. What would we do in such a case? Now, if we look at verse 1, it says, Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught people and preached in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead. So notice that they're arrested in the very act of teaching and preaching. So they've been declaring the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Jesus has lived. He has fulfilled the law of God. He has proved that he's the son of God. He died on the cross, not because he was sinful, but because we were sinful. And he rose again from the dead on the third day. He showed himself alive to the apostles and hundreds of others for a period of about 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And we see that here the apostles were walking in to the temple precinct. And as they were walking in, they saw a man who was born lame. And since he couldn't work, they would sit, his friends would sit him there at the gates of the temple, and he would beg for money. In this particular occasion, just prior to their arrest, they had healed this man. Most people ignored this man. They did nothing for him. Some people were moved with compassion and gave him some silver or gold to help him in his condition. But the apostles did something better. They didn't want to help him in such a way that he remained in his condition. They wanted to help him out of his condition. That is the difference between the way Christians do good and the way the rest of the world does good. We can all work together to do temporal good. But the difference is we don't want to do good for people and then leave them ultimately in their same spiritual condition. The apostles actually miraculously healed this man. Forty years he had learned to live life defined by his disability. And the apostles heal him and they let him know that this power to heal comes through the name of Jesus. And so this man is walking and leaping and he's praising God. And now all the people start looking at Peter and John and they start rather naturally, I think, attributing to them spiritual power. They say, wow, you guys should be worshipped. We should give you the praise and the glory and the honor. After all, you did this amazing thing. Whenever people do great good things for others, when they change somebody's earthly life, the credit tends to go towards them. And the temptation is to say, yes, I'm such a good person. Look what I did for these people. But Peter and John deflect all that glory, honor, and praise, and they say no. And they begin to preach a sermon saying that all good ultimately comes from God. And that the good that you're seeing today, the power to do this supernatural good, came through the name of Jesus Christ. And so they began preaching a message they began telling the people that they were responsible for their own personal sin, for the rejection of Jesus. And rather than saying, I hate this message, I don't want to hear it, I'm offended, I'm leaving, they were cut to the heart. And they said, yes, I admit, I am guilty. So what do I do? If I admit that I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God, what do I do? And Peter and John began proclaiming that in Jesus Christ, not only do you have the forgiveness of sins, but you have the gift of resurrection. That is that man's greatest need, the need for victory over death and the forgiveness of sins has come present in Jesus. 
And now that particular aspect, the preaching of in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, is important because of the particular group that's arresting Peter and John. So they arrest them in the middle of a sermon. And three groups converge on them. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now it's quite ironic because what is the function of a priest? The priest's job was essentially to be a guardian of the holy place. It was the priest's job to keep the temple holy. But what's ironic about this is that the man tasked with keeping the temple holy was actually profaning it through unbelief. Religion can become defiled. Even people claiming to know God and even claiming to be Christians can defile it through unbelief. And so this priest, who's a guardian of the temple, he's supposed to keep it holy, is making it unholy through unbelief. And the apostles, who are bringing holiness back, they're actually offering to renew the temple through the name of Jesus, who alone is holy and makes holy, and they are there to reject Jesus, the only means by which the temple can be cleansed. We also see the captain of the temple. The captain of the temple was a priestly officer who was, whose charge was to maintain a police force over the temple precinct. Again, the temple could be a site of all kinds of religious and political fervor. And one of the things they did not want to see was a riot. And that could always happen because Rome was occupying the land and the temple. If there was going to be a political religious uprising, guess where it was probably going to take place? At the temple. It would sort of be like, you know, uh, it's a national monument. It's, it's something people identified, a structure they identified with the nation as a whole. And so if there was going to be a, an uprising and a revolt, it would happen here. And so their job was to maintain the peace and the order. And this message that Peter and John are preaching has the potential for creating a riot or revolt. Thirdly, we see this group called the Sadducees. Now, who were these people? The Sadducees were a small but powerful religious and political group. They were the aristocrats. They were the wealthy. They were the elite. And they were unique in a number of respects. One of the things that's interesting in the Gospels, if you'll notice, the primary opposition to Jesus was not from the Sadducees. It was from the Pharisees, remember? It was actually from them. But in the book of Acts, things begin to change. And the main opposition in the beginning is no longer the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees. And I'm even going to point out, there's a couple of points where the Pharisees actually, at least outwardly, seem to be on the side of the Christians, or at least they help them a little bit to avoid arrest and being charged guilty. But a few things you need to know about the Sadducees in terms of what they believed. So as far as the Bible was concerned, they rejected all the books of the Old Testament except for the first five. They only accepted the books of the Torah or the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They said that's God's word, nothing else is. So they're already different in what they accept as a written authority of God's word. In terms of their belief, they were what we might call today materialists. Many people think that naturalists and materialists are a, a new phenomenon. But actually, that's not true. While it's true, materialists and naturalists were a minority report in ancient times, yet they existed. And some people argued that the Sadducees were basically materialists. What they said is, you don't have a soul. You're just a body. You're, you're just an animal, basically. You live, you die, you eat, you sleep, you work, you die, that's it. And your longings for meaning and significance has no meaning or significance. It's just a hardwired biological instinct. That's all. They believe there's no soul. And hence, if there's no soul, there's no afterlife. So they believe you die, that's it. You just take a dirt nap. That, that's all there is to it. So the idea of standing before judgment, heaven, hell, intervening souls doesn't exist. They disbelieved in angels or demons or spirits. They didn't believe there's anything. For them, the only thing real is what you can see. That's it. So very similar to a lot of the belief systems today. 
And all of this converges on a particular denial of a popular doctrine. The Pharisees and the majority of the Jewish people at this time believed that one day Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God who chose and saved a slave nation out of Egypt, was one day going to raise his people from the dead to life. That all of the promises of God that had not yet come true in their life would one day be made true. And the way God would do that is by raising his people from the dead and fulfilling all of his promises. That was a core doctrine for the Pharisees. It was a core doctrine for most of the Jewish people. But the excuse me, the Sadducees denied that. It was a part of their worldview. And so it's actually pretty important that these groups are being identified. Because you see, it's the way Christianity threatens people's belief system that elicits their response. So ironically, sometimes there's people, they're not Christians, but they're not necessarily bothered by Christianity either. They're not angry at Christians, they're not mad. Actually, I don't know if you know, there's a growing group of atheist intellectuals um, that, that think Christianity, they don't believe it necessarily, but they think it's a good thing socially. They look at the collapse of the Western cultural meta narrative. They look at the division of society. They look at the breakdown of the family and all these things. And they say, you know what? I used to hate Christianity. Still not sure I want to be a disciple of Jesus. But I admit, the collapse of the Western Christian worldview is bad for everyday social life. And so some are even advocating, we, we've got to bring it back. Because you need something that holds a people group together. Every group operates on a story. There's something that holds you together. Otherwise, you can't do life. Cultures don't hold together. That's why there's always a story of some kind. The Sadducees saw as their main threat the resurrection of the dead. And so that is why you see the opposition coming from them. The Pharisees, they do have some problems, but right now they're not on the surface. So right now they're like practically, hey, we're with you. Don't, I'm not fully on board, but I think we can work together to do some social good and we'll disagree later on down the road where the Sadducees right now say, no, this is a threat to the very center of our belief system. And so it says in the following verse that they came upon them and the reason is given being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the dead. Notice that. That is what is bothering them. This is bad enough for the Sadducees to arrest Peter and John, two men who have just changed a man's life objectively for the better. A man born lame, 40 years lived that way. They've given him his life back. They preach the name of Jesus to him. And yet the Sadducees, because they see in Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, a threat to their way of life. For the Sadducees, if the people start believing in Jesus, their position, their power, their way of life and beliefs could be destroyed. And that is why people ultimately oppose Christianity. It's not simply because it's not true. It's because they don't want it to be true. And that's what we have to realize. I know for me, I came up with so many objections over the years, and that's just kind of how I am. I'm a little bit of a skeptic by nature. I, I always question and say, well, why this and why that? And how do you know this? But how do you know? But how do you know? But how do you know? And some of those questions were legitimate. Some of those I, I genuinely did need to know. But I can be honest, many of the objections I raised to Christianity growing up had nothing to do with the answers to the questions. It had everything to do with the fact that I wanted to be the master of my own ship. I did not want to surrender. I did not want to yield my life to another. I wanted to move out of my parents' house spiritually, as it were. This is sort of a natural thing for teenagers. Even if teenagers are, you know, if you have just great kids, 
there's a natural disassociation that begins to happen. That's not sinful per se. I would even say God has hardwired that in young people, a disassociation, this willingness and desire to leave the family nest. It is good that they separate and launch out and become their own man and their own woman. But the problem is that disassociation, which is not bad and can even be good, has been tainted by sin. And one of the things that happens is not only do we want to get out of our parents' house so we don't have to go to bed at the time they say and and let them know where we're going to be. You can't just disappear for three days and expect mom and dad not to worry. And, oh, you got to help out around the house. You got to do some dishes and you can't just do this and that. And and if you want me to pay for college, you can't just flunk and drink all night. You know, just these basic kinds of things. And you kind of say, well, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do what I want to do. That's why I want to move out. And we do the same thing with God. We project that disassociation and rebellion onto our relationship with God. And we see in Jesus in the Bible a threat to our autonomy. And I can admit that that was my problem. I did not want to obey. I did not want to become a child. I did not want to humble myself. And I also disbelieved the goodness of God. I didn't just not believe that God existed. I did genuinely disbelieve that God was good. That was my hardest question that was honest. Lord, I believe you're there. It's tough to get away from you, but I've seen you let bad things happen time and time again, including in the church, which is a very place I thought maybe that it would be safe from that. Apparently it's not. And so, Lord, you're going to have to prove to me that you're good because right now in my life, I just don't see that. And so I understand the threatened state in which the Sadducees find themselves because I saw Jesus in the gospel and the resurrection of the dead and the claims of the Bible as a threat to my own life as well. And so they seize upon them. And the particular thing here, notice the text says, not just because they preached the resurrection of the dead, they preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In other words, they were not just proclaiming a doctrine they were proclaiming a living reality. See, the Pharisees agreed that there's such a thing as the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That's not what the apostles are claiming. They're claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already begun. It has happened. It is a historical event that can actually be studied historically. And there's been some incredible studies done on this. If anyone genuinely wanted to know how can I believe in the resurrection as a historical event, there are great books out there. There's a great historical, uh, analytical, critical book by an apologist called Michael Lycona. And he takes all the standard tools of critical historicism and he applies it to the resurrection in a massive 600-page book. Another British scholar from Oxford, N.T. Wright, has written an 800-page book on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So again, it's like if somebody wants the intellectual side of the resurrection that they can know, this isn't just an idea, but it's a historical event, you can go and do your research if you want to. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's not just an intellectual proposition. It is an invitation to surrender one's whole life. And with that will come suffering. And we do not want to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and say that if you can trust in God and in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and resurrection of the dead, the rest of your life will be easy. You'll have a great marriage and wonderful kids and you'll never be sick and you'll never lose your job and bad things won't happen and your church experience will will always be pleasant. We can't promise you that. I won't do that. I'm not going to lie to you. As a matter of fact, we all know, I think anyone who's been in the church and I've grown up in it, sometimes being a member of a church can be the hardest thing you've ever done in your Christian life. I would say it's one of the most blessed things I've ever done in my life, but it's also been one of the hardest things. The question is not so much whether it's hard or easy, but whether it's good. Some of the best things in life are hard. Can I get an amen for that? I think we live in a a society and a culture that wants everything now, fast, and easy. 
We want our spirituality like we want our food. Fast. Cheap. But the reality is true spirituality is slow. It's organic. It takes time. It's not easy. There are thorns and thistles and sometimes weeds in us and in others. So we are not saying that it'll be easy to follow Jesus, to belong to the body of Christ. But we want to declare with the church from the very beginning that it is good. It is good to follow Jesus. In verse 3 it says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until it was the next day, for it was already evening. This marks the very first time that followers of Jesus were ever persecuted. But it would not be the last. We know from history that the Christian church would be off and on sporadically persecuted during the reign of the Roman Empire. We know that there were times of intense persecution when people literally had to decide, will you deny that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead and save your life? Or will you confess that Jesus is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead and be burned alive in a Roman arena? Which decision will you make? And many believers made that latter decision. One of the great fathers of the church once remarked, uh, remarked that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One of the ironic things is it's actually suffering and pain that has caused the true church to grow and flourish. See, suffering and pain, what they do, they actually don't in reality drive people, ultimately at least, away from Jesus. But what they will do is drive nominal believers away. People who claim to know Jesus, but are really just along for the ride while it's good. But when things get hard and it's going to cost you, there might be suffering involved, they leave. Suffering and trials and persecution can be good in that they reveal who the real followers of Jesus actually are. We've seen that throughout the course of history. As we move forward into our day, slowly but surely, I wouldn't use the word persecution for what Christians are experiencing in America today. That, that's my belief. I know there's brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, fellow pastors uh, that do believe Christians are being persecuted already. I just want to be a little cautious in using that language. Not only to avoid hyperbole and therefore people stop taking us seriously, but I genuinely know about brothers and sisters who have paid the ultimate price, who've genuinely been persecuted, who've lost life and limb for the sake of the gospel. And I, and I personally don't want to say whatever I've gone through is worthy of even being called persecution, at least at this point. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Christians and the gospel message are slowly but surely being ostracized in culture. To really live for Jesus, to live by the Bible, to do what God says, to live a life fully given to God in the gospel is something that is slowly but surely costing believers. I do know of believers who've lost academic scholarships in college because they refuse to say and do particular things. I myself was actually on a full-ride academic scholarship to a mainline Protestant school in Austin, Texas. And I was told that if I did not violate certain tenets of my faith in papers that I was presenting to be graded, I would lose my scholarship. And keep in mind that at this time I wasn't single, I was married with kids, and this scholarship was providing not only my academic cost, but my apartment that I lived in. So what I was literally being told is what you believe can cost you your livelihood. That required a lot of soul searching. How much can I give and stretch myself? Get over my biases, my presuppositions, my own little quirky hangups. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean everything I believe is Christian. So I wanted to be willing to stretch and get rid of anything in me I thought was Christian that was not fundamental. But then I also had to arrive at those things where I could honestly, before God, look in the mirror and say, I would rather die than deny this about my Lord. 
And I had to go into the academic dean and sit him down and say, look, I, I can say this and this, but I cannot say this and this. Fortunately, in that case, they were willing to work with me, but I went into that meeting knowing I could lose not only my scholarship, but my apartment my family was sharing. Some of you may have lost clients because you've lived for Jesus. Some of you have lost friends and family because you've lived for Jesus. We live in a time where you can go on the internet and something you say when you're tired, before bed, in the morning before you've had a cup of coffee, could get you fired from your job. That's the time we live in. And so while I don't want to diminish real persecution that goes on in the world, I also don't want to be naive that it isn't going to cost you to follow Jesus today. You could be in a dating relationship with somebody and, and standing by your beliefs could cost you that relationship. If you say Jesus is not important or he's only mildly important, maybe you can preserve it. But for some people to say, hey, look, Jesus isn't just a thing. He's my everything. And if you don't want that, as lonely as I'll be if you leave, as sad as I'll be in our plans, because we've been talking about getting married, if you leave, it's going to devastate me, and I'm, I'm not being ignorant of that. But Jesus is my everything. It could cost you that. And so when we ask people to place faith in Christ, we always want them to know what the cost is and might be. The cost is nothing less than giving up all of your life to Jesus. If you make a decision today to follow the Lord, you are in essence surrendering everything. You're saying my life is not my own. It belongs to you. You did not die on the cross to have part of my life. Sunday morning certain moments throughout the week. You died so that all of my life would belong to you in body, mind, and spirit. And while this sounds kind of like a somber note, there's this warning label, there's this cost, I want to end on an up note, on a high note. Notice how our section ends this morning. It says, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be five thousand. Look, I can't promise anyone today, if you choose to believe in Jesus, just to begin that walk, that there's not going to be difficulty, challenge, suffering, and trials. But I can promise this. God will produce fruitfulness and joy through whatever persecution and suffering you experience. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is if you come to Jesus today, there will not be a tear shed ever in your life, any day up until now or any day after, that cannot be turned into tears of joy. There is nothing that Christ cannot redeem and use ultimately for his eternal pleasure. And that is the good news. And so the job of the Christian is not to spend the rest of our lives avoiding pain at all costs, but rather looking to the one who redeems all pain so that it bears fruitfulness for his kingdom. So in closing, I just have two admonitions for two groups of people this morning. For those who are in Christ, I just want to encourage you to continue to grow up in him. Growing up in Christ means maturing. We're celebrating two young men moving on from high school to college, but guess what? Even many of us who've been followers of Jesus for many years can be very, very young in our faith. There can be degrees of immaturity in us. Some of us have refused to grow up in our spiritual responsibility with respect to many things. And there's an invitation this morning to grow up into Christ. Maybe there's some suffering right now, some trial you're going through, and you're looking at it, and your number one concern is how to avoid it, how to minimize the pain. And while I'm not here to say that doesn't matter, I think it does, but I do want to say that it should be secondary. What is number one is, Lord, 
For whatever mysterious reason you have called me to suffer, to experience trial in this moment, what I am asking you show me is how I can grow up in Christ and bear fruit for your kingdom. If we can learn to produce fruit in suffering, we will be more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? So we want to grow up in Christ, those of us who are in Jesus. For anyone who is not in Christ, what that means is you have not decided to follow him. You've not decided to see him as your teacher and your Lord. We would just commend to you today that if you feel a conviction in your heart, if any of this just rings true, whatever that might mean for you, all I would ask this morning is something very simple, and I hope non-threatening. Please don't ignore that sense that you have. That's all. I'm not saying try to conjure up something you don't have. If you feel nothing, I continue to commit you to the Lord. But if you sense something, anything at all, I just want to encourage you, don't bury that. Don't cover that up. If it's an emotion, don't put it in the ground and hide it. If it's a thought, don't put it in the ground and hide it. I would just simply ask you to say, God, if this is you, and I, I don't even know who exactly you are or what this would mean, I don't know what you would want me to do, but if this is you, I just want to say, show me the next step. We're not saying take a thousand steps today. We're saying take one. Whatever the Lord is showing you, please just take that one simple step and respond. Say yes. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that the greatest news the world has ever heard is being shared with us today. That in and through Jesus, mankind's greatest enemies of sin and death have been defeated through the gospel of your Son. Lord, we thank you for those this morning who don't know Jesus. They have not decided to walk with him, maybe consciously. They've decided they don't want that. Lord, I thank you that you love them. I pray you just reaffirm your love for them. That like a loving mother or father, no matter how far from you they get, no matter how bad they might be, you love them anyway because you made them. And so, Lord, I just pray you would reaffirm your love for them this morning. I pray that if you put anything on their hearts or minds, that you would just show them what the next step would be in their thinking and in their doing. Lord, for those of us that have been following Jesus for any length of time, it's my prayer that we grow up, that we not be childish in our faith, that we would grow up into maturity that we would take on the responsibility of being members of the household of God. We pray that if we're going through hard times, I know many of us are, we pray that we would be seeking with all of our hearts how we can glorify you in and through this. We ask for a blessing now over this final time of singing and praise. May we experience your love and goodness, the power of your resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.